Well, we are here another week um, doing, our, doing our thing. Um, you know, we are a people that worships, which is, I think, part of why it's unthinkable um, that we wouldn't do something when we um, have the opportunity that we've been given, um, whether that's in, in the private or whether that is in small groups or gatherings or um, wherever it is that you find yourself worshiping the Lord today and coming before his word. As a church, we are a group of people who love Jesus. I hope that's true for you as well. I hope that you are a person who loves Jesus. Because we know there are those who don't. And last week, as we got into our time, uh, we started talking about people that we know who, who don't follow Jesus or who won't follow Jesus. Specifically those who see who he is, who, who see and know of his goodness, of his love, his mercy, of the work that he did on the cross, and yet they still won't follow. This week, we are going to be talking about a very different group of people. This week, we want to start, and I want to start talking about uh, that person that we all know who loves Jesus so much that it's a bit or a lot bit over the top, right? Too much. The person who loves Jesus so much that at times it can be embarrassing to be near them, right? They are ecstatic, exuberant, awkwardly demonstrating their faith in all kinds of places and situations, that just make you go, oh boy. If you do not know that person, then you are that person. Okay, because every church has them. Every single church that I've ever been a part of, every faith community, even small group has got that person. So if you don't know that person, that's you. And I would just like to tell you, the church needs you. The church needs you if you're that person. And if you're not that person and you find yourself occasionally cringing or going, oh man, they're doing it again, then here's the deal. You need that person too. Our passage today comes immediately after the resurrection of Lazarus, that massive, undeniable miracle where Jesus raises a man who's been dead for three days up, gives him life. This is the turning point. Suddenly the fervor and the plot to kill Jesus by the Jewish leaders uh, arises with a whole new fervor, right? Because when you do something that amazing, the powers that be can't let that slide, the passage we're about to read also comes immediately before uh, the passage that we call the triumphal entry. That's that moment, that time when, when Jesus finally and officially moves from his ministry in the world into the city of Jerusalem. And as he does that, the people proclaim praise and give him glory. Usually what we call Palm Sunday is the celebration of that. What this means is that we are coming into the final week of Jesus' life. 
And in the book of John, this is a change for us. This is a shift in looking at Jesus, who has kind of had his eyes set on Jerusalem for a while, but now we are within a week. We are within an imminent time of his death. So we're in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 today. And I want to tell you before we get to the story, this is one of those sweet moments, one of those sweet stories where you see Jesus, and you're just like, man, I love that guy for how he treats people. So John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, here's what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Like I said, this is to me a beautiful story where you get to see Jesus and you also get to see his friendships working out. Our passage opens with Jesus and his disciples at, at a party or a banquet, at a, a meal. There are others who are gathered there. This may be a Sabbath celebration. This might be something else, um, but it is a party, and moods are high. People are happy. Right? There's a contentment that you see as, as it even tells us that Lazarus is one of those reclined at the table, right? The man that he had raised from the dead just a little before this is, is sitting there, laying there, and they're all together enjoying their fellowship and their time. But then you have Mary. Mary in her usual place, most likely, sitting somewhere near the feet of Jesus. See, that's where Mary always was sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in every word, every teaching. She notices in the middle of this her Lord's feet. And to her horror, I imagine, she realizes that they are dirty. And she thinks to herself, why did no one wash his feet? His feet deserve to be washed. They should be washed. And I think that without any other choice, she goes to her room, she grabs the most expensive thing she has ever owned, this special bottle of ceremonial perfume. She takes it and she washes Jesus' feet with it. Upon realizing that she forgot a cloth to use as a towel, she grabs her long hair and she dries, mops up the excess oil on Jesus' feet with her hair. Making Jesus as comfortable as possible. But meanwhile, her act has made every other person in the room uncomfortable. Right? 
Jesus is comfortable. She seems to be having a time of her life. But everybody else, who knows? And as they stare awkwardly in a weird silence, again, I imagine this as I picture this, Judas finally speaks up and he asks the question that maybe a few of them were thinking. He asks the question, he makes the statement really, what a waste this is. And this could have been used for something else, something better, for ministry, for caring for the poor. Friends, I have to tell you, every church community also needs someone like this. Someone who's very practically minded. Someone who's going to ask the hard questions. The trouble is, is Judas is not a good example of this for us today. Right? Judas, not only uh, is, is he the one who is going to betray, we get that footnote here in this passage, but he's also stealing and thieving, right? His heart's not in the right place. Nobody needs someone like that around. <laughs> Friends, I want to tell you, Mary is, and let's be honest, Mary's a bit crazy, right? Mary is that one, that friend, that, that churchgoer who you're like, oh man, she's doing it again, right? Just a little too far. And it's great. It's great. Right? We all, especially the most level-headed of us, the most rational we need people like her around. We need them. And so Mary, having sat at the feet of Jesus, learned from him, had been taught by him, transformed by him, changed by her Savior. She has no other concern in her life, it seems, but to love and serve Jesus. We need people like that around us. I would pray that we would all be a bit of this as well. Friends, what we see in this passage is a contrast between Judas and Mary. This is what's supposed to be here. It's why this story, why, why John includes all of these details of what Mary does and what, what Judas does. Because there's a contrast that forces us to ask a question. One that I want you to ask of yourself right now. Are you someone who is more like Judas, or are you someone who is more like Mary? Are you willing to ask that question of yourself today? What we're going to be doing to do today as we get started is first looking at this contrast between Judas and Mary. And then uh, what we're going to do is look and land in this humble and extravagant, meaningful act of worship that we see Mary bring as she praises Jesus on this day, as she serves him. Friends, it is easy to admire Mary. She is perhaps one of the strongest models of devotion to Jesus Christ that we see in the Gospels. Right? There are others who kind of get it right. Mary seems to always get it right. It's easy to villainize Judas because he is the villain, right? The trouble is, it's so often to, to villainize Judas, right? To picture him as the villain, but fail to see his tendencies in us. 
Because as much as we should probably be like Mary, we may have the tendency to be more like Judas. So let me ask that question again. Are you more like Judas or are you more like Mary? Friends, Judas is all about what he can get. Let me say it again. Judas is all about what he can get. I want to start in verse 6 here. It says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He's a thief. He's literally stealing the money that might be given to Jesus as his, his ministry uh, needed at least some resource. I mean, they needed to be able to buy food and, and shelter on occasion and, and provide alms for the poor or whatever else it, it looked like. So you take this and then you add to it the 30 pieces of silver that he would later receive from betraying Jesus. And suddenly you realize Judas is the only one of the disciples who came out of this whole thing wealthier than he went into it. Right? Judas is, is stealing and he's going to get this silver. Now we know that, that he is going to end up with nothing in the end. But along the way, along the way, as others gave up more, gave up their financial security, he stepped into it. And as others gave that up, what they gained was eternal security. And what did Judas lose? He lost it. Right? Because the more you seek for yourself, the further from God you get. Think about the other disciples. You've got Matthew, the tax collector. Like Zacchaeus, had to give back everything he had taken from the people. Zacchaeus even went the next step and, and gave up four times what he had taken from the people. Right? After Matthew, after Zacchaeus meets Jesus, they are both poorer men for it financially. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what did they do? They met Jesus and promptly quit their jobs, left their family businesses, and went out to and followed an itinerant preacher with no income. They gave it all up. Meanwhile, while they're doing that, while Matthew and Zacchaeus are giving it up, while the others are, are giving up their jobs, Judas is literally filling his pockets with money that was meant to be for the Lord. Judas is only in this for what he can get. And then you look at Mary. Mary, having sat at the feet of Jesus, having learned, been taught, transformed, and changed by her Savior, is all about what she can give. And it's not at all about what she gets. Friends, let me ask again, are you more like Judas or are you more like Mary? Let's take a deeper look at this. Because I think we are like Judas whenever we are focused on what we can get. And so let me ask this. When we do religion, do we do it for God's sake or do we do it for heaven's sake? Do we do it for the glory of God or do we do it because someday, one day, we'd really like to be in heaven and not hell? If there was no eternal reward, would you still follow Jesus because of his goodness, because of who he is? Right? If there was no 
benefit, no blessing at the end, would it be worth it to you to follow him now? Are you in it for what you can get? Or in it for what you can give to the glory of God? We are like Judas when we desire the blessing of God more than God himself. When we do what we do, when we do devotion, when we read our Bibles, we pray, we go to church, we watch on TV or whatever we're doing right now, right? When we do those things for what we get out of it or maybe even what we won't be given if we didn't do it, right? Because sometimes we operate out of fear rather than the worship that we can give. Friends, in being like Mary, if we would sit at the feet of Jesus, if we would, would learn, if we would be taught, transformed, and changed by our Savior, then we can be what she was. We can be joyful, passionate givers. Givers of ourselves, our time, our money, our possessions, our talents. Giving is the posture of the disciple who sits at Jesus' feet. Giving is the posture, not getting. We take another look at Judas and we see that Judas covers his greed in stinginess with piety and love. Judas covers his greed in stinginess with piety and love. Again in verse 6, the very beginning. It says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Right? Judas speaks up. He says, hey, wait a minute. We should have sold this, and then the money could go to the poor, right? Exactly. I think every time I read this passage, and there's a couple others like it, I have the same thought. I'm actually a really practically-minded person. So I'm like, yes! Like, what is the importance of this? I am sitting right in that spot. And then you realize that Judas is not interested in the poor at all. What he's interested in is lining his own pockets. Right? He says this perfume should have been sold, the money used to help the poor. But what he means is this perfume should have been sold so the money could go in my own pocket. Think about the self-deception Judas must have been under this whole time. He thinks he's getting away with it. Right? He thinks, and he's maybe been stealing all along, the Lord of the universe is his travel buddy. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He's not getting away with anything, and we see that in John, because it tells it right there. Judas didn't care about the poor. He never cared about the poor. Judas was only concerned um, with, with what he could get, right? He was not concerned with the ministry and the work of Jesus. He was not concerned with loving broken people. He was only concerned with himself. And the reason for that is because Judas was a man who didn't love God. Right? That's the contrast that's made to Mary, right? She is one who loves Jesus. And it doesn't say anything about how she cares for the poor, right? But it doesn't need to. What it tells us as we look at Mary is that because she is the one who has sat at the feet of Jesus, she's the one who's learned from him, been taught by him, been transformed and changed by her Savior, that her heart is overwhelmed by Jesus. And so as she gives, she gives first to him. Jesus knows the rest is going to come, right? 
Jesus knows that, that after the devotion, when that devotion to, to him is there, what will come is loving and serving of, of the poor and the ministry to the people. See, Mary knows something that the others don't seem to know. As she comes into this situation, and I think it's probably because she of all of Jesus' followers, all of his disciples, um, she really made it a habit of listening and sitting at his feet. She knows there's something going on this week. Right? She knows all the rest of them are still concerned with, with, with worldly things, but she is pretty well convinced that something big is about to happen. That's why she brings this oil out, right? It's why she brings this perfume out, because she knows that this is the time. Jesus actually tells us that as well. In verse 8, he says that the poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. See, he encourages her because of that. That's because she knows this to be true. She knows this to be true. Friends, are you more like Judas or are you more like Mary? Are you like Judas? Are your words pious but your heart ugly? Are your words pious but your heart ugly? Or are you like Mary, focused on letting, focused on Jesus, and letting everything in her life flow out of that focus. Friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever really been focused on Jesus? I mean, have you ever taken a singular focus on Jesus to sit at his feet, to hear him teach, to let him change you? Your entire mind, heart, and soul. To take everything that you have, resources like treasure, time, your energy, your talents, right? To take all these things. Have you ever spent a whole day, a weekend, a week, a season of months in devoted prayer, study, fasting, and service of the Lord? Can you say honestly, that there has been a time in your life where you were solely focused on him and on him alone? Can you tell me there's been a Sunday morning worship service where you were solely focused on him and not on what dinner was going to come later, or what lunch was, was happening, or what that week's work week was going to bring? Friends, I want to I wanna challenge you right now. See, because I know we have a, a tendency to, to let Judas's heart be part of our hearts. And yet we are supposed to be a whole lot more like Mary. So here's the start. And I want to say this is easier for some of us in this time, especially in this pandemic, than it would otherwise be. Some of us, though, are so starved for this kind of time with Jesus that even five to ten minutes focused on him a day would make a huge difference. But some of us, some of us are ready for something else. Some of us are ready for something more. What would it look like in your life if you took half a day or a whole day and you went and you found someplace quiet to sit, whether that was um, in your own home, whether it was at a park or um, down here in Lahana, down to the grasslands or something, and you took a day and you didn't take anything but a Bible, a notebook, and a pen, 
and you left your music at home, and you left your other books, you left your fishing pole at home, right? And you didn't decide, oh, I'm just going to go hike for, for a day. What if you sat in one place an entire day with your Bible, a notebook, and a pen, and let Jesus teach you? Friends, I want to tell you, if you find yourself being a little more like Judas, this is what you need to do. This is the remedy, is to sit at Jesus' feet. Church, make the time. The last thing I want to talk about today as we go through this passage um, is to really look at what Mary's worship was like here. And there are three characteristics, or three qualities that I, I'd like us to see um, because I think they become very practical for us as we approach this. These really should be what characterize us, our worship, our hearts, as we approach Jesus. So I want to give you three. It won't take very long, but I think they'll be really good for you. And I know they're good for me. The first is this. When you look at Mary's worship here, it's humble. It's humble. Right? There is, there is no pride taking place in this moment in her life. Right? We get into this passage, and you've got this group of people sitting around together. And then you've got Mary, who, pretty accustomed to sitting at Jesus' feet, comes and she kneels down, bends over, she gets down by his feet again, and breaking this, this, this perfume, she starts wiping his feet. And then she takes her hair and her hair, and it, I mean, this is not a pretty moment. Friends, there should be no, there is no place for pride in our lives. There's no place for pride in her life right now, right? She gets it. She gets it the way you and I should get it. And so as she approaches Jesus, she knows that he's about to give his life for her. What place of pride can we come up with when we realize that we are the reason Jesus died? That, that it was us, what we've done, who we are, that caused the, the, the creator of the universe, the Lord of, of life, to lay his down. See, there's no dignity left her. She knows her place. She knows her place. And this is where things get a little bit choppy. Because the beautiful thing about being a Christian, one of the many beautiful things, is that we have been made to be um, sons and daughters of a king. We have been made um, into a new creation. We have been made like what Christ is. And there are moments when I think about that, and I think about an incredible pride that kind of wells up in me. Now, here's the thing. That's, I think, okay. It's not mine. I didn't earn that spot. I was given it. Not by my merits, but by Christ's. And yet, when you look at Christ and the Bible, and you see what it means to be a son of the king, a son of the God, right, what does he do? He takes everything that he has, all the great, and he... he throws it all off, and Philippians chapter 2, he humbles himself into the form of man. He lowers himself, 
even to the point of death on the cross. Friends, to be full of the pride in what Christ has done for us is okay, as long as we realize that that means we need to continue to emulate Christ, which means laying it all down. You see this in her life here. You see the humbleness here. Friends, here's a couple thoughts on humility, um, really from this passage. The first, um, humility can be really dirty. Right? I mean, I picture this moment, and her hair, and it's covered in oil and dirt. Manure? Right? I mean, this is not a clean time. People walking around in sandals and bare feet. I mean, this is a dirty moment. She washes his feet with her hair. Wow. Sometimes being humble can be really dirty. Number two, uh, to be humble is to sometimes make a spectacle of yourself. Right? Mary's a bit crazy. We know that. We love that. To be humble is actually um, to stick out sometimes. We live in a culture that basically takes humility and throws it as far away from them as they can. We live in an incredibly prideful culture that, that you are supposed to boast in who you are and what you've done. So as the world runs to that, the Christians are running the other way to humility. And there's a stark difference between what the world is and what we are. And the world looks and they're like, oh man, it's a little weird. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, when we experience our brothers and sisters who are a, a bit over the top in their faith and their expression of love for Jesus, why we tend to cringe a little bit or get uncomfortable because we have too much feet and foot in the world over here. Right? They're not the problem. We are. Another passage that I would, or another um, truth on humility I'd pull out of this, is that it is far better to humble yourself than to be humbled. It's far better to be, hum to humble yourself than to be humbled. This is the lesson Jesus teaches in, in some of the parables of the banquets and the feasts, as well as some other places. But you see it here as well, right? Mary humbles herself, she lowers herself, and she gets praised by Jesus. But Judas... Judas gets humbled. <laughs> Not only in the moment, right? Not only in the moment as, as Jesus is like, hey, be quiet. <laughs> Stop talking. But then also as John tells us the rest of the story in his heart, right? To be Judas, even apart from the betrayal of Jesus that we'll be reading about in coming weeks, to be Judas is to be humbled in this passage because we know his heart. So friends, it's far better to lower yourself. Because in that, um, what we see in Scripture, and you see this in James chapter 4, is that when you humble yourself, he will lift you up. Right? That's the posture of the Christian. We don't humble ourselves to be lifted up, but we humble ourselves because that's what we need to do. And in, in that faithfulness, Christ will, will raise us. So humbleness is the first quality of Mary's worship here that I think we just we need to keep our eyes on. The second is that it is extravagant. It is extravagant, her worship here. What do I mean by that? A few things. The first is that it is costly. It is costly. What Mary does here costs her a year's wages. A year. 
25 to $45,000 is the equivalent price of what she's done here. Some of us have trouble parting with a handful of dollars in our wallets. This costs her a ton. It is worth so much. And there doesn't seem to be a pause for her. In fact, what we'll see is in just a minute is that this is what it was for. <laughs> but friends, when we think about this, we know that we have been given a cost. We've been, a price has been paid that is far beyond anything we could ever bring. Our worship should be costly. It should be like hers, extravagant in that it is over the top. Right? As I read this story, I think, and I think it's pretty clear, all right, I'm good with washing Jesus' feet. I'm even good with breaking the oil. But the moment she gets her hair involved in that, I'm like, man, we've crossed the line here. It is over the top. Nobody should debate that. And that's the point. It is over the top. It is far beyond what the reasonable person would ever do for Jesus. Or for anybody, for that matter. And yet, here she is. Friends, our worship should be over the top. And I don't mean that we should have super high production values and light shows in worship and all that stuff. What I mean is that our hearts should be so involved in this that, that as the people around us, they're going, wow, this person really really loves Jesus. I would love for my worship, I'd love for your worship to say that to the world. And here's another thing, I mean, when we talk about being extravagant, it becomes a blessing for everyone. It becomes a blessing for everyone. I want to point out, at the end of verse 3 here in our passage, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And then it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Right, this blessing was not limited to Jesus. But it goes throughout the entire household. Everybody gets to enjoy this. Everybody. I would even venture to guess those passing by on the street are going, what is that? Right? Because when our worship is extravagant, it becomes a blessing. It becomes a blessing in our own hearts. It becomes a blessing for the, the people of God that we're, we're, we're together with. It becomes a blessing for those who are, who are outside of all of that and, and see the passion and the joy and the, the life that comes in that and then follow Jesus themselves. So friends, what we see in our worship is that it is humble, it is extravagant, and the last thing that I would point out here is that it is full of meaning. Now we don't necessarily see that at first glimpse when we read this story, but her worship is full of meaning. It is so full of meaning because what she's doing comes out of hundreds, thousands of years of prophecy. And it comes into what's about to happen in the city of Jerusalem as Jesus is preparing to lay his life down. It is reminiscent of what would happen when, when somebody came forward to be king. They would be anointed. But it's also the exact kind of thing that would happen in burial. They would be anointed with this oil, cleansed, washed. What Mary does here is full of worship. In the NIV, and I like this, I think it's a little clearer in the NIV than it is in the ESV. Jesus says, leave her alone. 
And then he says, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now guys, I don't know if Mary knew exactly what she was doing, but God did in this moment. He says, hey look, that oil, that perfume, that was meant for this moment. She's been holding on to it for however long. We don't know where it came from originally, how she came by it, but we do know she has it for a purpose. And the purpose is to use it in this way and on this day. Good stewardship is using what you have for the purpose that it was intended. And the meaning here is so loaded as we look at Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem just after this and, and as he is in himself preparing for his death. So at the very end when he says, the poor you will always have, but me you won't always have, right? all of the fullness of this meaning is coming together. Friends, when you worship, does it involve both your brain and your heart? Does it involve the, the deep truths of Scripture as well as the deep things of our lives? Do the songs that you sing, that we sing, do they go beyond just the melodies and the, the rhyming? Do they teach us something deep? Friends, when we worship God, whether that's in song, together, in praise, in church, or whether that's the ways that we live our lives, it should be so full of meaning. A depth, a depth that reveals that there is something more going on. That reveals the fact that, that you and I are people who make it a habit of, like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, being taught by him, being changed by him, being transformed by him. Friends, I pray that we are all more like Mary than certainly Judas. But I would pray that we would be more like Mary than we are right now. And if you are Mary, right, if you are that one, continue, grow in it. Because we all need a little more of you exuberant, ecstatic, joy-filled, sometimes a little bit embarrassing, but always loving Jesus. We all need to be a little more like that. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you and we come before your word today. I pray humbled. I pray encouraged, God, as we just know the work that you did in her, that, that you're doing in us. I pray, God, that we would be a people that are full of life. God, I pray that we would be a people so, uh, so full and, and focused on you that the other stuff doesn't really matter. God, that our lives would be singularly focused on you. If there is anyone who's listening to this right now, whether in this room or um, those who may listen to this even over the next decade, um, Lord, who do not know you, God, I pray that your spirit would move in them and draw them to yourself. And God, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth that our lives will be yours as you have made them to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.